Hello and welcome to Strip Back the Pages. In this episode, I'm delighted to announce some of the Nano Rhymo winners and I'm thrilled to be talking to one of them. Let's get into it. Now I recognise that this is only a fraction of those who have won and they represent people either I've followed or who have followed me on Twitter. I think the annual NaNoWriMo is going to be a big thing on this show. So for future years, when you win, simply email me and I'll be thrilled to share your success. As usual, I'll remind you of my contact details at the end of the show and of course you'll find them in the show notes. So, this year, the winners that I've come across are as follows. And again, huge congratulations, massive achievement, absolutely brilliant. Here they are. Annalise Knopp, Kalarishomo, Kevin Herman, Charles Heath, Ali McCormack, who actually won the challenge on her birthday, so a belated happy birthday, Ali. Neil J. Hart, Dr. Suresh U. Kumar, Dabble writer, Rebecca Clark, Anne-Marie, Rosie, Jen Willis, AJ Nyblock, Diane Wordsworth, Lila and Melody. Commiserations for those of you who didn't quite achieve it, but go for it next year. Provided I'm in front of my publishing endeavours, I'll be joining you. And now into the main event. A few days into the challenge, I had the good fortune of meeting the lovely Annalise Knopp on Twitter, as she agreed to come on the show if she won. So, let's find out more about her and how she did it. So, Annalise, welcome to the show. Great to Thank have you. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. Brilliant to have you. Obviously, we made contact via NaNoWriMo, and you've won, you've done it. So, tell us all about it. For listeners who don't know what NaNoWriMo is, it's an internet challenge where both amateur and professional novelists commit to attempting to write 50,000 words in 30 days. Before you get too freaked out, that only breaks down to about 1,667 words. Now, at my insane pace, I can do that in about 25 minutes. But that's really about an hour's worth of work for most people. I just don't care as much about typos because I can't see them as they end up on the page. Did you say 25 minutes? Yes. Good grief. How did you do it? <laughs> um, I learned to type early in, in the mid-90s, and I just never really stopped. I mean, that's incredible. That is, I mean, what do I take? Um, I mean, I suppose my average is, what, 1,200 words, you know, just generally speaking. And that's probably, mm-hmm. probably take me a couple of hours. So, I mean, to do that in, in 25 minutes, wow. <laughs> Yeah, my average is 80 words per minute if I'm really, really dedicated. I'm very impressed. I'm sure everyone else will be as well. Well, again, part of it is I just I don't see the errors as they throw up on the screen. So it doesn't it doesn't catch me. Mm. So I don't slow down and fix things. I just go. Yeah. So are you fully blind or a little bit of? I'm about 90% blind, so I am functionally blind. I have just enough vision that I can see the thing before I trip on it sometimes. Yeah. So, Annalise, tell us what what you can and can't see. Right. So I was born with about 75% vision loss and I'm about 90% blind right now. But that's not a very practical set of information for people who can't imagine partial blindness, which is a very large portion of the sighted population. Mm -hmm. So what this is like is 
if you imagine, if you make fists with your two hands yeah. and then open them up just enough so there's room that you could put like a, a straw, like a drinking straw through the space between your fingers, yeah. then hold that up to your eyes. That's how much I can see. I have no peripheral vision. I have right. no depth perception. And if you turn the lights off, well, I'm a lot better in the dark than I am in the daylight. <laughs> right. Okay. I mean, that must be a challenge in itself. In, in a lot of Sometimes. Ways. What makes it more of a challenge is that the the environment that we have constructed for the way that humans live is based around having five functioning senses, but primarily the site operating as the primary. Yeah, um, it's a little redundant. But if you can reimagine how we design our environment, it's perfectly possible for people with visual impairment or physical handicaps of other sorts to complete the exact same tasks just differently than we do them now. The biggest challenge is getting sighted people to slow down, stop trying to do things for me and letting me show them I can do it just differently. Yeah. And I mean, when we were chatting previously, which I really enjoyed, and I mean, you were saying then that, well, I think we were both saying that in a sense, you've got enhanced other senses that sort of compensates Okay, so here's my soapbox. Oops, have I said No, no, it's, no, no, not, well, incorrect, but not wrong. Okay. There's a fine distinction there. Um, I hear this a lot from other people, and it it tends to have this vibe of, well, obviously, um, we have to find a way to to compensate. We don't want to feel feel bad for you because you can't see. So, well, obviously, you have this other bonus. You You can hear better. You can smell better, whatever. Right. That is only sometimes the case Yeah. in that... Our brains are designed to process certain types of sensory information at certain rates and certain priorities. So the brain prioritizes visual information processing over audio processing. Mm -hmm. To some degree, you can naturally override that by just not using your vision or not being able to use your vision. But if you really want, quote unquote, enhanced senses, it takes a lot of intentionality to train your brain to attend to those. The sensory organs themselves, the ears, the tongue, the uh, skin, they themselves don't pick up more information. It's all about how you train your brain to process and prioritize and extract information from the signals coming in. Yeah. So you can have a blind person who is just, they get easily overwhelmed by a lot of sound and because they haven't trained themselves to pay attention and differentiate different challenges, or they don't have a good sense of smell because they haven't trained themselves to use it. But then you can have another blind person who has put the effort into distinguishing different undertones in a tea blend or able to pick out every single part in a symphony. So a lot of it's intentional. How functional do you want to be? How much do you want to intentionally rewire your brain? Yeah. I immediately clocked you saying symphony because you're, <laughs> well, you're a musician as well, aren't you? Yes, I do play the piano and sing. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't be a blind person if I didn't, you know, play the piano, do martial arts. It's all the typical cliches. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, martial arts, what have you, what have you done now? Are you, are you black belt? So I have had to shift dojos several times. I've never actually completed a black belt program in any given dojo, but I have been practicing off and on for more than 20 years. Wow. So lots of experience, just not a lot of trophies, as I were. Yeah. And I can't see the color of the belt, so what does it matter? (laughs) (laughs) 
But, I mean, that's just impressive. So going back to the music, so, I mean, how long have you been playing the piano? I mean, have you sung professionally or? Oh, no, not professionally. No, this is all just my, my hobby. I started playing when I was seven. Yeah. I was in and out of choirs all throughout my education. I played a little bit for a, uh, a worship service for a little while. Yeah. These days I've been playing around with composition because one of my stories in progress has some really interesting musical components and I've wanted to come up with music for it. Um, but I don't like writing music. It just takes too long. I just want to play the music and have it magically appear on my computer. Right way I know there's it. software to do that. I just haven't done it yet. Yeah. But so, uh, well, look forward to hearing that sometime. That, that'd be really good. Sometime in the very distant future. I'm in the middle of a lot of projects. <laughs> so go on. What, what are the projects are you in the middle of? Well, are we just talking writing or are we talking everything? Because think, I'm an overachiever. Yeah, let's, let's start with everything. Yeah, because okay, I think we'll start with we'll, everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so I am a mental health counselor in private practice. Right. I am a mental health blogger. I contribute to a couple of different publications. One is aimed at educating parents with children of disabilities or parents with disabilities who are raising children. One is aimed at fellow counselors trying to open up the professional field for healthcare providers with disabilities. These days, just historically, healthcare providers of any kind, they look at people with disabilities as patients, not providers. And we have a lot to bring to the table in that regard. And so I want to normalize the idea of a blind counselor or an MD in a wheelchair. So I, I do a lot of professional advocacy. I am very, very, very slowly inching my way toward being bilingual in Spanish so I can offer counseling in two languages. Yeah. That's a long term project. And then, of course, I write my own blog, lookonthedarkside.com, which is about life as a professional blind woman with a service dog. And then I write a lot of fiction. Mm. And some of it ends up published and most of it just sits on my computer. Do you think you'll self-publish at some point as well or do you stick with a, a mainstream publisher? Oh, I only self-publish. So the one novel that's out right now, which is collaboratively published with my best friend, Galadriel Coffin, is self-published. And I just traditional publishing sounds like a lot of work for not as much return. Yeah. And they have a lot of requirements that are difficult to meet if you can't see their templates and requirements. So I know that there is a blind authors advocacy group trying to make traditional publishing more accessible, but I just didn't want to deal with it. I'm an indie all the way. When I release, I'll be, I'll be self-publishing. You know, I mean, there, there are. Fantastic. There are so many, I think there are so many advantages. Mm-hmm. You know, so. I for mean, nothing else, I'm a control freak. I'm not going to let anyone else have control of my books. <laughs> Good for you. Well, think of this one. <laughs> Let's just say we're lucky enough to get, you know, get a pick for films. Uh-huh. With, with the traditional publishers that they, they, they want all the control. It's our book. Right. It's our work. We want the control. See, now I'm enough of a control freak that I don't think I would ever let anything that I wrote be converted to film because I just it would they it wouldn't be done right. Okay. I wouldn't trust anyone else to do it right. <laughs> OK, well, you write you write the screenplay as well, then. <laughs> and do the directing and the <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave visual effects to someone else, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, going back to your work as a counselor. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about, do you think you might write a book in, in that? I have thought about it. 
I don't think I would write one aimed at counselors. I think I would write one aimed at the visually compared community and agencies that provide employment and training support to people who have visual impairments. Yeah. And it would be in the direction of professional development, because one of the things I've discovered is that as a blind teenager and college student, you get a lot of training on how to write a resume, how to land and nail an interview and how to do a great handshake. But no one teaches you anything about once you get in the door. It's like you great. You have a part time entry level job. You should be grateful for this. They don't talk to you about continuing education. They don't talk to you about networking. They don't talk to you about conflict resolution or accommodation negotiation at higher levels of employment. They just kind of assume that you'll stay at the bottom of the barrel. The employment statistics for people with disabilities are abysmal. They're, they've never been higher than 20% in, I looked this up, in either the United Kingdom or the United States for adults with physical disabilities. I mean, that's, and I could say that's awful. It really is. It's um, awful. <laughs> it's, it's pretty deplorable. It is. And so, and then I see so many people who they aspire to get a job they don't aspire to have a career because no one tells them it's possible when you're growing up as a little kid most people here you can do anything you want do you want to be a doctor when you grow up do you want to be an airplane pilot do you want to go into the army do you want to be a lawyer do you want to be a policeman and no, nobody asks that of visually impaired kids yeah i mean they should they should mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's a lot more opportunities and we don't have to settle for entry-level part-time positions at you know charities or whatever there's a lot of potential i mean i have worked with some amazing blind and otherwise handicapped professionals in a bunch of different industries and had some fantastic conversations with them i will be publishing blog posts of interviews with some of them in the next uh year about how they fought for themselves and how they nourished their own careers without any external support from the agencies that are supposed to give us a leg up who are supposed to help even the playing field, how much they did in spite of those agencies. Because again, we tend to get this whole, well, you should be grateful that you have any job mentality. And that's Uh, insufficient to put it mildly. It's disgusting. That is Mm -hmm. absolutely awful. You know, but it's changeable. I'm a complete optimist. So I look at this and I say, I have a piece of this puzzle. My puzzle, my puzzle piece is writing. How can I use both fiction and nonfiction to normalize the idea of successful people with disabilities in a wide variety of careers? Yeah. I mean, if you want a brilliant example, Stephen Hawking. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yeah. And, and so many others. So many others. We had a president of the United States who was in a wheelchair, but he hid yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. We had that before we even had a black president. And yet no one talks about that. It's kind of this embarrassing secret that he was embarrassed about his disability. And so he worked really hard to hide it. Mm. I mean, bottom line, you you should never be embarrassed about who you are, what you Mm -hmm. are. You know, all I'll say on that is please, please keep up the brilliant work you're obviously doing with with your advocacy. (laughs) Well, Um, I enjoy it too much to quit. So, well, the, the world needs more people like you. So good for you on that. Thank you. Right. Regarding that amazing challenge you just completed, here in the UK, a lot of us call it NaNoWriMo. Is it the same with you, or do you prefer NaNoWriMo? 
I say NaNoWriMo, but I can see how NaNoWriMo would make sense. Um, mm. I've heard people say NaNoWriMo, and I was like, like phonetically that makes sense, but when you think about the acronym, that doesn't make sense. No, but then of course, no. if you think about the acronym, NaNoWriMo makes more sense. I don't know. Mm. I have a okay. I have a little hand knitted stuffed turtle that lives in my counseling office. Um, he helps my clients sometimes, and his name is Nano because someone gave him to me in the middle of NaNoWriMo. Yeah. So you decided to go for the challenge this year. Mm-hmm. Where did you start? What inspired you? And, and what book did you decide to write for the project? Okay, so NaNoWriMo has become a regular part of my year. It's it's kind of the highlight of my writing year where I give myself permission to prioritize writing a lot more than I normally do. Yeah. I give myself permission to dedicate time to it. And it just it energizes me for the rest of the year. It's always a very deeply introspective time. I learn about myself as a writer, but also as a time manager and why I don't give myself more permission to work on my passion projects more often. Yeah. This year, as I was getting ready for it, um, I habitually work on two separate projects for Nano. I okay. work on a joint draft with Galadriel, we work on the whatever the next Shalik C book is. So that's yeah. the Jubilant is the book we published last year. And so we were working on a draft for the second book this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also wanted to do an independent project. And that's the one that I actually put up on NaNoWriMo. Right now it has a dreadfully melodramatic title because that was the phrase that was stuck in my head. And I figured that I was just going to stick it out there. Um, so we're we're not going to say that out loud because it's awful. <laughs> but the idea for it was a whole bunch of different pieces of daydreams that had gotten stuck in my head. And I was vacationing on the southern Oregon coast this past September with my family. And there was one day where I had the beach house all to myself for like six hours. And that's an introvert's dream. This huge, beautiful house with the sound of the ocean right there and nothing to do and no one to interrupt me and a great a tablet and a great internet connection. And I sat there and I outlined four books. Three of them were for a series that is has been on the back burner for a while. That is an urban fantasy with the main characters is, is a counselor and also a knight, as in mm. a knight in shining armor, yeah. in the 21st century in my hometown. But then the fourth book that I outlined was this kind of Stargate Atlantis meets King Arthur meets German fairy tales mash high fantasy mashup that just kind of happened as I was throwing ideas on the page. And all of a sudden I realized I had a three act story and, and it was, it was just all of these kind of pieces that hadn't gone together until I started writing them. And I'm always a proponent of, if you feel like you're not ready to start writing yet, then you're definitely ready to start putting ideas on the page. Yeah. If you don't feel like you have an outline, if you don't feel like you're ready to draft, but you feel like you have an idea, the minute you put it on the page, it'll multiply like bunnies. You don't have to write anything coherent. Just write, I have an idea about X. And if that's your first sentence, before you realize it, you'll have a dozen more. Putting it outside of yourself onto the page, it's actually, it's a lot like a counseling exercise we do called externalization. You take whatever your anxious about or depressed about inside your head and you put it outside of yourself by either saying it out loud or writing it in a journal or drawing it. And when you put it outside of yourself, you suddenly gain a different context for it. It's no longer limited by the space inside your head. It has expanded 
But at the same time, it's become limited by the page that you've put in front of you. It has a stronger structure and that makes it easier for people to address really big concerns that turn out to be mediocre or medium level concerns or things that made them really, really sad. And then they write down the one thing and they realize that, oh, there's actually five or six things making me sad and I didn't even realize it. And now I can see them all. So doing that as both a writing exercise and a counseling exercise can be very beneficial. Yeah. So in a nutshell, you simply take an idea and start writing. I think that's what I did with my nano project. This was back in September. I threw the ideas down. I shaped them into an outline. I had an outline ready to go when nano hit. Yeah. But it turns out that as I was writing for nano, I ended up pouring a lot more ideas onto the page that had original that had been originally in my outline. So like I looked at my outline And based on the content of my outline, I should be in chapter three, but I had so many other ideas that I'm actually on chapter 10 now. Right. Gotcha. Because what I was doing was I'd have, yeah, again, a rough idea, rough outline. And when I finished writing that particular session, I'd then be plotting Mm -hmm. and planning the next one ready for the next day. Right. So it's that hybrid. They call it the planter, P-L-A-N-T-S-E-R. So it's like plotter and pantser is stuck together. All right. Okay. Because the pantser (laughs) writes by the seat of your pants and the plotter plots everything out. And if you're kind of halfway in between, you're a planter. Okay. I'm a planter then. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) How many words did you finish on in the end? I actually, I'm kind of surprised. I only did about 50,800 words at the end of Nano. I was a lot busier than I expected to be because my private practice grew significantly right in the middle of it. And so I had to take longer breaks from writing than I normally would have um, because the counseling kind of comes first. Absolutely. Um, Especially when the client is sitting right in front of you, obviously. Yeah. Um, So Normally, I I tend to do about 75,000. This was just a 50,000 word year, which, again, I'm, I'm betraying myself as a major overachiever here. But going through NaNo allowed me to recognize where I was blocking myself from writing throughout the rest of the year. So I'm really excited about possibly for the first time establishing a regular writing habit. Yeah. I mean, 75,000 words. I did it in 2020. Mm-hmm. My proud achievement was a first attempt. So I was really pleased with that. But I, yeah. I finished with 50,145 words. Nice. No, that's that's nothing compared to your 75,000. <laughs> well, yeah, but yours was probably spelled better. Um, <laughs> I'm not so sure. <laughs> I'm not so sure. <laughs> um, yeah, because I actually, well, as, as you know, again, from our, our other chat, my novel comes out next year. Mm. And my project for Nano or Nano was um, book two. So I'm halfway through there. But I'll be honest, I haven't even edited it yet. I I, I did it, completed the challenge, and mm-hmm. I've I've yet to pick it up again and carry on. But, uh, I usually take about at least a month's break where I don't even touch the project yeah. after Nano. Yeah. You need some time between drafting and editing for yes. things to kind of – so you can come back at it with a, sort of a fresh context. Some yeah. people will get an alpha reader. Some people just let it sit in a drawer for a little bit. And mm. I'm definitely sitting in a drawer because there's I'm too much of a perfectionist to let anyone read this alpha. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, saying that, if that on Twitter, either yesterday or earlier today, somebody asked, how many drafts do you do? With, with the main project, it's worked mm. out about nine. How many do you do? 
for example, um, the your jubilant book? Oh, let me think. I would say seven to nine was actually a pretty good estimate. Okay. Uh, we did a lot of drafts really fast at the end for some kind of surface level level stuff, and then we actually just issued a reprint um, that corrected some minor typographical errors. Yeah. Like a month and a half ago. Yeah. Almost two months ago. Wow, time flies. But I mean, there weren't that many. There were just enough that it irritated us. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, I. About about seven to nine, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, you know, there's always the hope that with improved writing processes, improved writing habits and skills, you'll be able to cut down the number of drafts. I don't yeah. know if that's actually a reasonable assumption, but I know that just about every writer I know has that belief. Mm. So it could be a myth. Yeah. It could be one of those we subscribe to and then we get, you know, we, we blame ourselves for never, you know, achieving this this mythical two draft book that we're all trying to get to, or it could actually be a reasonable process. I'm just too early on in my publishing career my, to say one way or the other. My my gut instinct on that, two draft book, nah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no, it's just, you know. <laughs> I mean, I was really lucky. I had um, a mentor called Darren King, and mm-hmm. so I had a professional writer working with me in, in, in this first book. And I did, when I gave him the first draft, I thought, well, that's about it. Wrong. Mm-hmm. The edit. <laughs> I mean, I was a complete <laughs> novice. <laughs> but, I mean, another thing, world building. Do you, do you create your worlds first and your characters first and then write, or does it evolve? I'm oh I'm a character driven writer. I love character driven stories. I always I have a character before I have anything else. I have a character. I have a few scenes that add up to a vague plot. The characters develop and the worlds develop somewhat simultaneously with everything else as I need them. So, for example, we were we were on our fourth or fifth draft of Jubilant. And we had an incident with one of the characters had had a traumatic flashback in the middle of an operation that she was supposed to be commanding. And she fled the scene and returned to her ship. And we needed a way for the captain of the ship to acknowledge that what she did was not, was not okay as a commander, but also to be supportive because we wanted him to be part of her healing journey from this, this um, trauma that she's experienced in the past. And so on the fly, I created a theory of mental health based in this culture's existing belief system for that chapter. Yeah. But before we knew anything about most of the characters that come from that particular fictional culture, we had already come up with ideas for kind of some of their social hierarchy. So it really depends on what you need at the time. Yeah. Um, but that's how I come up with it is, is what do I need at the moment? What do I need to create right now? Do I need to create a character theme? Do I need to create a plot point? Do I need to create part of the world? I guess I would call it needs based. Yeah. So it does. It, it evolves. It evolves, mm-hmm. which is I mean, basically how I how I work. So, I mean, going back to Jubilee. So did you say you released that last year? Yeah. A year ago, as of December 1st. Yeah. So it's just celebrated its first birthday. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and we discovered that trying to release a book while doing NaNoWriMo doesn't work. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I we managed it, but it was rough. <laughs> yeah. 
So again, going back to Jubilant, is it an 11 book series or a 12? It was 11, but it's 12 now. So I think the website says 11, but it's 12. And that's not counting the short story anthologies, graphic novel, spin-off series and cookbook. I know you told me about the cookbook yesterday <laughs> and wow. Go tell everyone more about the cookbook. We're going to hear about the cookbook. Okay. <laughs> right. So during our editing process, some of the feedback we got from our beta readers was that you spend a lot of time with characters sitting around meals and describing these meals. Yeah. And at first we took that as kind of a criticism, like people were getting bored of this. And then we thought some of our favorite books are the Red Wall novels by Brian Jakes. And he spends a lot of time talking about these delectable, delicious sounding, amazing meals. Yeah. And then we thought about other books that we liked that characters having conversations around meals was a big deal. And we're like, you know, a lot, you know, these these particular beta readers aren't enjoying it, but obviously there's a market out there for fantasy that includes elaborate discussions of meals and how they how they draw at different character dynamics. Mm -hmm. And we got inspired and Galadriel and I spent an entire summer cooking our way around our world, which is the Shalaxy. So the series is called the Shalaxy Chronicles. Yes. We picked dishes from we we kind of spent a lot of time on Google and then modified dishes from different cultures around our world based on what how we imagined cultural development would have altered you know just just based on what you know what was available in different regions and we crafted menus and you know um table manners and a lot of cultural norms for social hierarchies and social customs and we invited several of our friends who lived locally who are also our beta readers and we said yeah. you know once a week we're going to do this meal from this country and here is tips for costume if you want to dress up and right. we would rearrange the living room to wow. eat at different you know table heights so like some of the cultures would sit on low couches and some yeah. of them would sit at normal tables i created some youtube playlists for atmosphere and so we took our friends on a five senses journey across the shallow sea and you can actually find recipes and blog posts from that initial exploration on Galadriel's website. That's GaladrielCoffeine.com. Right. Galadriel, as in the elf from the Lord of the Rings, coffee with an N as in November.com. And her blog has the preliminary recipes. And then we'll be doing a lot more from different parts of the Shalak Sea and creating a full length cookbook at some point in the future. That'd be fantastic. You, you know, these get togethers you've had. Have you thought of maybe filming them as well, stick them on YouTube? Um, it didn't occur to us uh, at the time. These were just very informal with um, just, just a very small social group. Some of them were writers. Some of them were just friends who had been reading. They are avid fantasy readers. And so we wanted a reader perspective as well as a writer perspective. Yeah. But these were all just a very honestly, it felt more intimate than something that you would we would film. It's an mm. interesting idea. Yeah, um, just, and just we might consider in the future, but this yeah. first time around was definitely too personal for that. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, it does. I mean, you got me really excited to you know, cookbooks and you know dressing up. And <laughs> well, go go and... try out some of the recipes on Galadriel's website. Absolutely, definitely. I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, then then tell us which ones that you like best. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, on your website, one of the first things I noticed was you have got the most gorgeous German Shepherd. She is very pretty and she knows it. <laughs> How old is she? So she's about eight and a half years old right now. Yeah. Uh, she's a senior lady. She, mm -hmm. she doesn't act like it. But then I've never met an old dog who who wanted to act that way. They're, they're all puppies until they're not. Yeah. 
Yeah, her name's Greta, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. She originally had the name Garbo, and I didn't know what that meant. And my mom was like, oh, the actress Greta Garbo. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm changing that. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how old was she when you had her? I got her when she was about 20 months, so just oh. under two years. So she was a she was a youngin. Yeah. Oh. Um, and she is she's very petite for a German Shepherd. People look at her and they're like, oh my gosh, she's so tiny. Yeah. Uh, she's only about 70 pounds. Mm-hmm. So she's she's a little girl. She curls yeah. up in a teeny tiny little ball when I travel with her. She fits under my airline seat, and of course that means I get no foot space. Ah. <laughs> But uh, she is actually on a mental health sabbatical of her own. And I'm glad you asked about this because one of the issues I've run into recently in the service dog community is there's a lot of pressure to never talk about problems with your service dog. Why? And why? that is very isolating. But why, can, why, so, can't talk, why can't you talk about it? Well, so the privileges of being able to take a service dog almost anywhere in so I'm like I'm from the United States, and so what what protects the privileges of service dog access is the Americans with Disabilities Act, and I know there's something similar to that in the UK that yeah. allows access to public places, public yes. transit for service dogs. Yeah. But all of those are predicated on the dogs having excellent behavior. Yeah. And so if you have a dog that has had even the most temporary or singular behavioral mishap or mistake. Mm-hmm. people kind of shut you down a little bit because they don't want you to ruin the reputation of all other service dogs. And there's this, there's this, like, we, we just don't talk about it. Our, all our dogs are fine. They're, they're perfect. They're fine. They do what's necessary. Our dogs are solving all of our problems. And some of it is a pressure to prove that we're capable of handling the dogs. Yeah. Um, that we're perfectly capable of taking care of them because there's always been an animal rights angle where that people are concerned that people with disabilities aren't capable of taking care of the dogs. But then there's also the, the whole problem of, of maintaining that excellent reputation of perfect behavior. Yeah. So um, as part of my counseling internship, I worked at a high school, a very large high school with a lot of, you know, uh, rambunctious hormonal teenagers crammed into very narrow hallways. The kids respected Greta, but they did not necessarily treat each other very nicely. And so when you put a high strung German shepherd in the middle of that kind of hormone casserole, it created a lot of stress. Right. And so she started having what amounts to canine panic attacks in public. And I had to pull her from work because she was not concentrating on her job anymore. Right. And I was afraid that people would think that she was out of control. And so I've been rehabilitating her for the past few years. And unfortunately, she had a physical injury that um, put a pause on her emotional rehabilitation. So it's taken longer to do that. I've been rehabilitating her longer than she actually worked for me. But I'm really committed to this because I have learned so much about canine health care and canine mental health care and training through this that I know that I will do a much better job with the next dog that I can take these lessons Mm -hmm. and I can pay them forward to other dog handlers and other service dogs, you know, when, when Greta retires eventually, but it's, it's been a challenge because I became so anxious about what other people would think of, of her panicking that I, I have to keep working with her in order to regain my ability to trust her. Otherwise I'll never trust the next dog. Yeah. And I just I wanted to be able to say that because there are so many service dog users out there who have had problems and they felt like there's no one that 
like they feel like they're the only ones having this problem Mm -hmm. and they feel like there's no one to talk to. And so that's why that's the first thing. The first reason that I started my blog was to kind of document our journey toward better working team health, as well as as my own experiences as a blind woman trying to build a career. So those two kind of intertwined along with what I call my flashback Friday posts, which are about my initial training with my very first service dog, comparing what I learned then with what I know now. Yeah. So with Greta, is there an age they have to retire or? So it really depends on the breed and the physical health of the dog. Labrador's Golden Retrievers, they don't tend to work as long as German Shepherds, mostly Mm -hmm. because you just can't stop a German Shepherd from working. Yeah. You know, it depends on the quality of food, the quality of, of physical care that the dog receives, and then just how much physical wear and tear your own lifestyle puts on the dog. Yeah. So if you're a hiker and you take your dog hiking all the time, if you're someone who commutes on foot all the time, then your dog is just going to have a lot more wear and tear on his body, just the way that you have wear and tear on your body. But if you're pretty relaxed and you, you know, you take the bus everywhere or you carpool with people and you have a more sedentary job and you don't, you know, like hike or walk in the park a whole lot, then your dog is going to have a little bit less wear and tear, but maybe a little bit, though they won't quite be as in shape. So it's the balance between finding what's a healthy level of activity for you and the dog based on your age. One of the things that experienced, you know, people who've had multiple service dogs, they talk about like the last two to three years of their dog's working life. They found themselves changing their lifestyles to accommodate the dog slowing down, the dog yes. just not having as much energy. Yeah. And, and they want the dog to keep working as long as possible because mm-hmm. the dogs are emotionally driven to work. They yeah. love the work. They are <laughs> they're overachievers like we are. And so they, they get depressed when they don't get to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, when they do retire, do you keep the dog for the rest of her life? So that depends on where you get your dog from. Mm -hmm. Some schools retain ownership of the dog. Some schools retain partial ownership of the dog. And some schools give you complete ownership and autonomy over the dog while still offering support if you need it. So Mm -hmm. I own my dogs outright. Brilliant. Um, If my first service dog had not died of cancer, I would have worked her uh, probably four or five more years after she um, after the point at which she died. And then I would have retired her and kept her. Yes. So you you Uh, didn't have that chance. Oh, so sorry to hear that. So you're you're definitely keeping Greta. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. She is as much a part of me. (laughs) She's a real sweetheart. Um, One of the first things that she learned when I brought her home is she learned how to chase her tail on command. Oh, she's such a class clown. Yeah. Um, We've been teaching her all kinds of different tricks lately as part of physical therapy for her shoulder, because um, that was the physical injury that kind of delayed her mental health therapy. We yeah. had to rehabilitate her shoulder. She uh, she stepped into a hole or something when we were running around at the dog park, and it's taken a while to get that back strengthening it. So she's learning all kinds of new new tricks to strengthen her and stretch her shoulder out. And so she yes. just, she loves learning these new games. But she's such a clown. Um, <laughs> my previous dog was a diva. Her name was Prada. She was a long haired German Shepherd. She was a she was a diva. And then this one is definitely a clown. She's she likes games. She likes to do silly things. Um, she's, she's just, and then again, she, she chases her tail on command because she figured out that it made everyone laugh. Brilliant. I guess we'd better get back to the books as well. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. We could talk for hours and well, I'll tell you now when you release your next book, mm-hmm. it'd be great to have you back on the show. 
I would I, be happy to do that. I have so enjoyed this. Mm-hmm. So, well, I'm guessing, like I was going to say, where can people get your books? And I'm guessing it's on your website. Look on the dark so side. I actually, I have a, I have a link on the website directly to Amazon, but I don't sell it directly through my website. Right. Uh, but it's easier to find it on Amazon. We're hoping to have an audio book on audible.com sometime Excellent. this next year. It was supposed to happen this year and that didn't happen. So yeah. it's a long book. Uh, can I just give my sales pitch? Please, absolutely. All right. Okay. So for readers of seafaring fantasy adventures, this is a character-driven story with a slow burn romance, lots of magic and dragons, and a lot of pirates. It's fully illustrated. We have a picture, an illustration drawn by my co-author, Galadriel, on almost every chapter. Fantastic. Uh, with a glossary of nautical terminology and some deck plans and sail plans in the front of the book for those of you who are not as well versed with sailing ships, because mm-hmm. not everyone is a fan of Patrick O'Brien the way we are. Yeah. But if you enjoy the Master and Commander series or Michael J. Sullivan's Rayera, then you'll probably like the character and plot elements in our series. Fantastic. The first book is Jubilant. It is... 720 some odd pages long it's not a light read how many thousand words uh 180 ish right, okay Okay. and for readers who are triggered by allusions to sexual trauma i suggest that you have a friend screen it before you decide to read it right okay they're not graphic. There's only illusions in a couple of flashbacks, mm-hmm. but I would hate for someone to accidentally be re- re-traumatized by reading my book. So yeah. just, just have a friend screen it before you decide to pick it up if you're concerned at all. Yeah. Okay. Sounds fantastic. Brilliant. I've got two more questions. Okay. Uh, the first is we're not far away from Christmas. Mm-hmm. What, what are your plans for Christmas this year? Doing anything exciting? And I'm just really quiet. My family lives pretty far away. And so we will probably do a really quiet dinner with some friends on the evening of the 23rd before yeah. most of our friends head out of town. And then we'll just um, probably either watch Stargate Atlantis or play Dungeons and Dragons on Christmas Day itself. Sounds good. OK, now I've got a question for you. I'm working on mm-hmm. a project. In my first show, what, two months ago, we were looking at the first story as children here, i.e. nursery rhymes and fables. So it's my own stupid fault, but I volunteered to write a more up-to-date or adult version of The Boy Who Cried Wolf. So I'm asking my guests and listeners to suggest a possible genre. So what do you think? Now, the options are crime, romance, sci-fi, fantasy or horror. Or before the you answer, who, go ahead. Before you answer, even cross genre. What, okay, do, what okay. do you what do you think? I feel like a crime thriller would be a really interesting take on that. Mm. I could see that as a as a, a mystery, almost a detective story. Yeah. That could be really cool. Hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Sure. Because again, what I want to do, I just want to gather lots of ideas. This stemmed from, I used to live in that with John Tribute. Mm. And this one particular, one particular day, one of the, the venue organizers, because he knows I compose, mm-hmm. and he said, if I gave you three notes, could you write a tune around it? And I said, yeah. 
And in the second half of the show, that's exactly what I did. I wish I wish I'd recorded it, but I didn't, you know. And that's, yeah. what, where, that's where the idea came from. I thought rather than just me come up with all the ideas, mm-hmm. ask people, pick sort of whatever the most popular is and work on that. Okay. Well, I really hope that the, you get enough people saying crime, drama or um, mystery because I think that would be really cool. Yeah, fantastic. Well, it's interesting you bring that up, though, because a lot of the initial ideas for Jubilant came from an image from an illustrated children's book. Oh, right. So some of it was inspired very heavily by the Master and Commander series by Patrick O'Brien, which is nautical historical fiction based on the British Navy during the Napoleonic Wars. But I had this image in my head from when I could see a little bit more. So when I was a child, I could see about 75. I was I was I'd lost about 75 percent of my vision or I was born with um, I was really, really blind as a kid and I'm more blind now. (laughs) So but I could see enough that there was this really high contrast picture because um, contrast always helps me. Mm-hmm. Uh, this really high contrast picture in a children's book of a sea serpent on the surface of the ocean towing a ship. Right. Like he had his anchor in its mouth and he was pulling it. Yeah. And I had this image in my head as we were writing some material for, for the Shalaxy series. It's actually one of the later books where we have something similar happen. But it was Cyrus the Friendly Sea Serpent by Bill Pete. And it was this children's book that I read when I was like five. Yeah. And there was the, the sea serpent had um, he had this one ship that he like he was lonely all the time. And he just kept following this one ship around because he liked listening to the people. And they got caught in the doldrums. And so he just grabbed their anchor and he towed them out of the doldrums to where the wind was blowing right. and they could get on their way. That image of the sea serpent towing the ship and the people being really confused and scared and like what's going on and then finding out that it's actually a really good thing just really stayed with me. And so children's stories and fables can have a profound impact in the most bizarre ways. Yeah, I think for now we're about there, you know. And what a great point to finish on. Anything else you want to add or mention? Uh, No, That, that seems pretty good. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you. I'll thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. You bet. And look forward to talking again soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Annalise. That was great. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Wow. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as Annalise and I did recording it. You'll find links to Annalise's website and books in the show notes. So, it's now just two and a half weeks till Christmas. Are you ready? Am I ready? We'll have to wait and find out. As usual, you can email me at stripbackthepages at gmail.com or message me via Twitter at stripbackpages. Thanks for listening and I hope you have a fantastic week. Until next time, this is your host, NJ, signing off.